<laughs> Great. Is this good? Yeah? Fab. There we go. You can hear me. Well, good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you um, on this August August evening, uh, where the sun has been shining a bit for us, which is great. It's a nice time of year because often, um, and this might be some of you here this evening, often people come and visit. Um, so welcome if you are a visitor or if you're new to Worcester. Um, as Johnny said, um, we'd love to get to know you, so please do fill out um, a welcome card, come and say hi to someone with a with a badge on, um, and we'd love to, to chat to you more. So yes, I'm, I'm Laura, and I am married to um, Owen, who... Um, is the curate here, so like the vicar in training. Um, he's actually with our two small children this evening. Hopefully they're asleep by now. Um, and we're doing this um, summer series um, as part of this whole year we've been doing called the Year of Biblical Literacy, looking at what we've called threads. So kind of like little strings, as it were, threads that, that we see not just in one place in scripture, but throughout the whole of the Bible, right from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. And um, Owen kicked it off with that well-known thread in the Bible of Egyptian horses um, a few weeks ago. Um, and then last week, um, Rich uh, spoke about the temple. And tonight, um, I'm going to be talking about mountains. Now, if anyone was at New Wine, which is the uh, Christian summer festival that we go to as a church, um, you might be thinking, oh no, I've heard her on mountains already recently. Um, but I, I hope this is going to be a bit, bit different, because I'm not just looking at a single mountain moment um, in scripture, but kind of trying to do like the whole shebang uh, this evening, looking at several uh, different uh, mountains. And it's quite funny in a sense that I'm doing this topic, um, because I'm not really your intrepid uh, explorer or adventurer. These days, I get to the top of the stairs in our house and I feel like I've climbed Everest. Um, but uh, I um, have climbed Snowdon, like a good Welsh girl. Um, and I did read a book recently with an introduction written by Bear Grylls, you know, the, the, um, uh, the face of uh, adventure and trekking. And um, I know Matt and he's climbed, he's there in front of me, he's climbed Mont Blanc solo, haven't you? Not to the top. But hey, that's further than I'd have got. I don't think I'd have even put my walking boots on. I'd have stayed in my slippers. Um, but uh, in, this, in this book I was reading that um, Bear Grylls wrote the introduction to, it's called Dirty Glory by Pete Gregg, amazing book. Um, he said this fairly near the beginning of the book, that there isn't, and I'm quoting, um, a single biblical character used by God who didn't have a life-changing encounter with his presence. So every uh, character that we read of um, throughout scripture has these moments of encountering the living God, these experiences of his presence, where God reveals something of his character, of who he is, of his nature to these individual people. And from those moments, they go forward to be all that God has called them to be. Not, not always <laughs> brilliantly, but they have these, these moments, these pivotal moments of encounter. And these mountains that we see throughout Scripture, this thread that is our focus for this evening, are such moments where individual people, and sometimes, as is the case, um, got some images here of the six kind of main mountains. There are others I could have mentioned um, this evening, but these ones we're kind of going to be focusing on a bit. That, that second one, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, Sinai even, that's a more collective um, experience where actually not just um, Moses, but the, the whole of God's people, Israel, are gathered at the foot of Sinai, and they 
they um, experience something of the, the reality and the presence of God. So we've got Moriah, that first one, where Abraham takes Isaac. It's a bit of a tricky passage, <laughs> makes us uncomfortable, but he goes up the mountain because God calls him to follow him in obedience to sacrifice his son Isaac, but then God provides a ram, and Isaac is okay. And it points to Jesus and the provision and the sacrifice that he will make for us. And then that second one, Sinai, I mentioned, Moses' mountain. The third one up there, Carmel, Elijah's mountain, where there's that standoff between Elijah, who belongs to Yahweh, and the prophets of Baal, who've been um, in an attempt to kind of lead God's people astray. Mount of Transfiguration as we move into the New Testament. Then Mount Gerizim, which is the location of the passage that Abby read for us, which is kind of a a focal and pivotal point for us in this whole mountain adventure, Um, and then the Mount of Calvary and Crucifixion. I was uh, doing an Alpha course a few years ago, leading um, a table. Alpha, for anyone who hasn't heard of it, is um, a course where people can come who want to uh, ask questions about life and about God, um, find out more about Jesus. Um, Bear Grylls, in fact, is on the face, isn't he, of many of the Alpha posters. There we go. Um, I was doing, leading this table with uh, these two brothers. Um, they were about 17 and 18, and their mum, they were brilliant. Their mum had um, forced them to come and do an Alpha course. And they came very dutifully, good, good sons they were. And uh, they had their questions, as did many others on, on this table. And kind of one of the, the brothers' um, biggest objections And you may have heard this uh, yourself from people that you know. You may have had this objection at some point. You may even still have it this evening. Was, you know, come on, God, you need to make yourself more obvious. If God was real, then he would make himself more knowable. You know, they said to me, Laura, we would need a sign. At that very moment, as they said that around the table, there was a power cut in our church. The entire lights, all the lights went out and went completely pitch black. And it was so funny and perfectly timed. And they were kind of simultaneously completely freaked out by what had just happened. Um, And also did find it funny when the lights came back on. They were just saying to me, you know, Laura, can we know God? How can we know him? How can we encounter him? Would he make himself more obvious? And people search, don't they, through religions, through different experiences, through the stuff that we fill with, you know, fill our lives with, all of these things to kind of satisfy that question. Can we know God? Can we experience him? In many ways, all of those things, those searches, the stuff, what we fill our lives with, even the, the, the happiest moments, all the stuff we do has at its root, I think, a cry in our souls for, but can I know God? Is he there? Can I experience him? And when we come to the God revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, and ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of uh, the Holy Spirit, there is one thing we can be absolutely certain of, and that is that the God of the universe, the God of Jesus Christ, the God who gives us his Holy Spirit, he is to be known. He is to be known personally. He is to be encountered. And that's the first thing I want to say this evening about these mountain experiences throughout Scripture, that they were places where people knew God. They encountered him. 
We read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. That same verse is echoed uh, in Micah, in the Old Testament, in um, chapter 4, verse 2. And then we read this in the Psalms. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, mountains for Israel, for God's people, were these places of encounter, of knowing the God who is knowable, of connecting with him. I was um, talking with someone at a a kid's party about a year ago. Um, He asked me uh, what Owen, my husband, did, and I said he um, he was training to be a vicar, and that's quite useful in conversation. Um, And then I said to him, you know, if you ever wanted to come with us uh, to our church, um, with you and your family, um, you'd be most welcome. And as I said that, he kind of backed off, and maybe you've had that experience yourself in conversation. And he says, no, 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 Laura, no, church isn't for me. But do you know what? I actually feel some sense of a kind of spiritual experience when I'm walking in mountains. And then two weekends ago, I was in a wedding, and during the reception, in the course of conversation with a man who was sat opposite me, who would have called himself kind of sceptical as far as Jesus Christ was concerned, he said that he thinks that his spiritual experiences happen when he's on mountains. It's interesting. I wonder whether something about the the bigness, the vastness, the splendor of these um, these heights uh, causes uh, people to feel like this. But, you know, in Scripture, be it on Mount Carmel or Mount Sinai, wherever, the mountain isn't the point. God is. It's not some kind of vague or general spiritual experience, although as we read these accounts throughout Scripture, they are profound (laughs) encounters with the God who is spirit, who is life. But these moments are not just vague and general, kind of, hmm, yeah, not sure, but I feel a little bit of something. No, they are moments in which the knowable God, the nameable God, our God, defines himself, reveals himself, shows us what he's like. So on on Sinai, um, God calls Moses uh, uh, with the purpose uh, primarily of uh, revealing the the law, the ways of God to him through the Ten Commandments and then several other laws. And as he do that, just as he does that, just prior to that, we read this, and this is in Exodus chapter 19. This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, the specific action of God in saving his people Israel who were in slavery in Egypt prior to this this moment of God redeeming them and carrying them, as he says there, on on eagles' wings is, is mentioned. They are to know that this is the God who is, who is going to speak to them from this mountain, the knowable one, the nameable one. And then God goes on to give really clear and specific instructions for how, as God's people, they should live. And then on Mount Carmel, 
That's Elijah's mountain. Um, Elijah's there, has the one standing up for Yahweh. He's kind of doing this quite solo, poor guy. He's surrounded by 450 prophets of Baal, um, the the, uh, man-made false gods of the time. And he says, okay, you guys, I want you to get a bull. Some of you might have read this story. Um, in, uh, in 1 Kings 18, and um, I want you to get some wood, he says, and you get the bull, and you can go first, you can pick the best bull, I, Elijah, will pick what's left. Um, he's trying to make it hard for himself and for, for God, um, and, uh, and they put the bull and they, on the wood, and they call to Baal, and nothing happens. And then, Elijah says this, Uh, This will appear on the screen. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed to the nameable, knowable, defined, clear God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then on this mountain, an incredible moment, the fire of God falls down and and licks up even the water that Elijah has put all around this trench, and the bull is consumed in the fire. And then we read this in verse 39 of 1 Kings 18. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see, these mountains that we see throughout the Old Testament confirm to us that the God of Scripture is knowable, that he is nameable, that he has done stuff in human history through his people, and he will do stuff. He's involved. And you know, that that is our God. Is that the God that you are holding on to this evening? The God who is knowable? For you personally, the God who has done stuff and who will do stuff in your life, the God who doesn't stay at a distance like these man-made, imagined gods of Baal who don't act and don't come up with the goods, but the God who steps in, the God who loves, the God who is involved, the God who is with us. You know, we're not talking about some vague, mountain, spiritual, shot-in-the-dark experience. No. We're talking about these moments where we can point to who our God is. We name him. What a, what a beautiful name. And we point to the things that he has done throughout salvation history, and we say, this is our God. This is who he is. And isn't this the God that we need and that our world needs? Because surely to, to love is to get involved to be knowable. To be truly good is to be knowable, to be relatable to, to be powerful is to step in and do something. And then we get to, finally, you might think, (laughs) this evening's reading of the Samaritan woman. And you might think, hold on a second, Laura, this woman is at a well. This is not a high point. (laughs) You may well realize that I am geographically challenged. But actually, (laughs) this is happening um, on on kind of the the, the foot of a mountain, and it's 
pivotal because not so much of its location in, in, in some senses, although we could talk about that and that is significant, um, but it's more uh, what the woman says in terms of mountains, um, as, we, as we read there. And Jesus is doing, isn't he, something quite controversial in talking with this woman. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. Uh, she's a woman on her own in the middle of the day without anyone with her, possibly indicating that she um, is, an, is an outcast, doesn't have friends uh, with her. That would have been, some, you know, collecting water would have been something you'd have done um, as a social activity. But uh, Jesus goes to her and um, he, has, he has told her, we read in those uh, verses um, 18 and, nine, and 19 that she doesn't actually, you know, he says to her, well, I know that you don't, uh, you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now um, isn't your husband. And, um, and she responds to him in verse 19 with the words, sir, I can see you're a prophet. You know, you've just told me something. I've, I've never met you before. You've just told me something about my life. Um, I can see you are a prophet. And then she goes on to say, our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And it might seem at first when we read that, like she's trying to kind of divert the conversation away from the awkwardness of what Jesus has just highlighted about her life. Oh, look, look at those lovely mountains over there. But I don't think that she is changing or diverting the conversation. You know, Jesus has just revealed something to her about her stuff in her life. It might be that her, her husbands have, have actually died and that she was widowed several times over rather than us thinking, you know, um, ill of her. That, that might have been her story. Um, but here she is anyway, living with a man who isn't her husband and, and possibly she's thinking, oh no, I've been found out. You know, he's, he's found me out, he, he, he knows me. So her kind of gut reaction here I think is much more a case of, I need to get to confession. Take me to an altar. Take me to a place where I bring my sacrifice and I can come before God and it can be okay and it'll, it'll all be all right. You know, in ancient times, you couldn't just expect to encounter God anywhere. Instead, if you wanted to make a sacrifice to get right with God, you had to go up the mountain. You had to ascend the hill of the Lord. And back then, everyone knew that just picking any old mountain wouldn't do. You know, what if you got the wrong one? And you jeopardized making your sacrifice and, and, and your offering to atone for your sin um, because you'd, you'd, you know, got the location wrong. I'm a terrible map reader, so I would have had real trouble here and found that really tricky. <laughs> but this woman, far from, I think, trying to change the subject or to use theology as an escape from her personal engagement with what Jesus is saying here, she's basically asking the question, where can I go to find God? How can I encounter him? Where can I go to find God? It's quite moving, I think, when we see it like that. And when we think that actually that's a question that so many around us, maybe even you yourself this evening, are asking as we fill up our lives with different things, the moments of our pain and, and, and suffering, you know, where is it that I can go to find God? And then it's like at that moment, 
you know, like an alpha, the lights kind of go off or on for the woman. <laughs> um, and we read this in verse, turn with me, 21 to 24. Jesus declared, he responded to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. According to Jesus, although her question about mountains was a good one, it doesn't actually matter anymore. Because no longer will people need to go up a mountain to find God. God is coming down the mountain to find them. No longer do they need to trek up there and make their sacrifice. You know, God is coming down the mountain to find them. And actually, he was standing right in front of her, you know, in the foothills of Mount Gerizim, answering her questions. And I love verse 26, when Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. It's me. I am the living God, the, the, the one who makes God known. You see, as we trek through these kind of this thread of mountains from the Old Testament into the New Testament, this is what we see. That yes, God has always been the God that we can know. He's always been the God who has revealed himself to his people. But in the Old Testament, that was for certain people at certain times and in certain places. For his people Israel, uh, through particular individuals and leaders and specific people who were anointed. And we can read of these people in the Old Testament by his spirit. But then, on another mountain, in the New Testament, Peter, James, and John, three disciples of Jesus on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, another mountain for us, which we can read of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, accounts of the life of Jesus. And on this Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, the one who they've been walking with and talking with, the one who they've heard teach and heal people, suddenly before their eyes, he's transfigured. And we read this in Mark 9. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Jesus' transformation here, this transfiguration, which is kind of hard to put into words, really. I think, you know, Mark is, Mark is struggling to, to find how to express it. His clothes were kind of white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. But it's basically to show that Jesus here in this moment is revealing that the fullness of his identity as God himself, his transcendence, his glory, his splendor, his very godness is on show so that Peter, James, and John have absolutely no doubt as to who Jesus is. This is the, the God, the Lord of it all, who has come down the mountain, the one, the knowable God, the one who we can encounter and experience has come to us in Christ. Look who has come down the mountain. 
And then as we continue to another mountain in the New Testament, the, the main beacon, as it were, the mountain to which all the others kind of point, the Mount of Calvary, the place in which Jesus is crucified, that, that mountain that we sang of um, wonderfully so much um, earlier this evening. We see, don't we, that this woman that Jesus is speaking to at the well in John 4 no longer needs to go to offer a sacrifice and hope that she's typed in the right postcode and sat nav. <laughs> no. The, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is, is right before her. He has come to us in his grace and in his mercy. And we look, don't we, to that mountain, to the Mount of Calvary, the mountain where Jesus is crucified, and we give thanks that it's through Christ's sacrifice for our sins that we, imperfect, unrighteous people, can know the living God in his holiness and in his perfection and in his splendor. We look to that mountain and we see that all that would separate us from that relationship with God, from that God who is noble, who is definable, who is nameable, who is encounterable, who reveals himself to us, all that would separate us in our lives from experiencing him, from knowing him personally, as we look to Jesus on that mountain, we see that it is dealt with. We don't need to come here this evening and like whip ourselves a few times before we can sing and we can pray. All, all we do, and we do it humbly and we do it thankfully, is praise God that in Christ we can access his presence and his goodness and his love and his freedom and his life and his blessing and all that he would have for us to do. Look who has come down the mountain. The God who is noble, the God who saves us. And the trek continues. You know, our, our, our trek, our expedition continues as we follow this story, this thread through the New Testament, and we see Jesus' death and his resurrection and then Pentecost. And the Spirit of God is poured out. It's like it floods down the mountain. The Spirit of God, the life of God, as he comes and dwells amazingly in us. He comes by his presence and his life to dwell in us, in the very places that we, we live, in the private sanctuaries um, of our hearts, the, the places and the moments of authentic worship where we worship the living God in spirit and in truth. Now, because of Mount Calvary and the outpouring of God's spirit at Pentecost, it's not as it was in the Old Testament just for certain people at certain times and certain places, but for any and for all and whenever and at every point if we would say yes to him and we would invite his, his uh, knowableness <laughs> into our lives and his spirit and his life into all that we are. I mean, we, we do, don't we, take these things for granted now. You know, we know this is the wonderful message that we have as followers of Jesus and those who know the life of him by his spirit in our lives. We, we kind of take it for granted that we're temples of the Holy Spirit and that he, he fills us with his life. But can you imagine what this would have been like for this woman at the well that Jesus encounters, hearing that actually, you know, she who'd only been able to worship God from a distance could now know God personally. And that 
dissatisfaction in her life, kind of symbolized by all the, the water and thirsting, which is another thread for another time, <laughs> could be um, satisfied in him, in knowing God personally for herself. And so I find myself asking the, this question and asking you of it as well this evening, is this the reality into which we live as believers, this reality that we can know him, that he is the God who makes himself known? And does my day-to-day life show that I know him? You know, do I live as if God has come down the mountain into every moment, if I would turn my thoughts to him and, and invite him and let him? Owen, um, my husband, uh, finds it quite easy um, to enter into sort of any sporting activity with a real sense of passion. Um, he's done that recently with the World Championships, the athletics, um, so much so that our three-year-old and our um, <laughs> one and three-quarter old have been like jumping over cushions in the living room because he's been playing uh, <laughs> the athletics and they've been uh, pretending to throw javelins um, and, uh, you know, shot put and doing all sorts of things. Um, and uh, it's been quite entertaining. Uh, but um, uh, it, Owen has had this thing about golf for a while, and uh, he's collected lots of magazines about golf, and um, <laughs> he's um, uh, even got uh, his brother bought it for him because he sensed his kind of passion um, for golf, um, uh, like a little hole, a single hole. I think probably a few of you have actually come over and putted. Putted? Yeah. A ball into the hole um, at the bottom of our garden. But anyway, Owen will, will you know, practice that, and even sometimes I'll see him like um, at some point uh, in the house, like practicing his golf swing. Um, but you know, at some point, he is going to have to get out there and actually play golf. You know. <laughs> and I wonder, for us this evening, how much do we just know about God? And how much is it that we actually know him for ourselves, that we are tasting and we are seeing for ourselves that God is good? You know, how, how much are we just doing the theory, <laughs> reading the magazines, as it were, and practicing our swing, but not getting out on the course? How much are we asking someone else to pray for us before we pray ourselves? How much is this vicarious, faith, live through someone else, through their experiences, through their stories, through their testimonies, through what we hear, through what we listen to, and how much is us ourselves going to this knowable, this nameable, this relatable to God first, having our own story, having our own testimony? How much are we piggybacking off somebody else's faith, and how much is ours? Those moments throughout the day where we get up and the first desire of our heart is to turn our thoughts to the living God, to, to pray to him, to, to pick up his word, to encounter him there, to, to throughout the day, be we in the car on the way to work or sat at our office desk or running around after small children, whatever it might be, how much are we turning our minds to Christ? How much are we asking him to be the God that he is, to step in, to act, to be involved, to be knowable? Or how much do we just wait for a Sunday, or wait for our small group, <laughs> or, or wait when we're 
not quite so busy? Now, are we living like our God is the God to be known at every point of the day? Because that is the glorious truth of this progression of mountains throughout Scripture. That through Christ and his sacrifice on Mount Calvary and the outpouring of his spirit, we can know him each and every moment of the day. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? That his presence goes before us, his presence is in us, if we will let him, if we will turn our minds to him, because we can turn them to other things a lot. We can be distracted. We can let other stuff clog us up, get in the way, other yokes, other things which might burden us. You know, and are we perhaps even bringing the good things that we do in his name as the way of trying to get to know him rather than just knowing him simply in who we are. I remember having a conversation with Kath Johnson, who is Rich, the the vicar's wife, about the presence of God. And I remember her saying how grateful she was when she was at home with small children uh, for those moments where she'd go to the kitchen sink and she'd pause and she'd turn her mind to God And in those moments, God would really speak to her and he'd remind her that he'd been with her throughout the whole day. And she had these several moments, brief, brief moments at the kitchen sink (laughs) where she would know God encouraging her by his presence in her. And do you know what? I have really remembered that. I'm in a similar season of life (laughs) and I find myself at my kitchen sink a few times. (laughs) And I go there expecting and finding God in those moments. Maybe that sounds offensively domesticated. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we lose the awe and the reverence of the God who is transcendent, of the God who is holy. We, we retain that, but as we look to Christ and to the Holy Spirit, we see that in his grace, he comes into our ordinary with his extraordinary That is the grace of God to us, isn't it? That he, the living God, the one above it all, the one who we could never fully understand, (laughs) comes and graces our ordinary, even our kitchen sink moments, (laughs) with his extraordinary. That is what he does. So what about you? Do you know this evening, you know, who, who you are essentially, that you have that life of God, that presence, if you have said yes to Christ, that you have that life of God within you. And if you do, the second and quick and closing thing I want to say is that the God who is knowable on these mountains will be then the God who we make known. The God who we know for ourselves firsthand, not piggybacking off someone else, not vicariously, but the God who we know in every moment of the day at the kitchen sink, in the car, um, as we garden, as we, whatever it is, play golf. Um, (laughs) The God who we know will become the God who we make known. It's a natural progression. And it's actually the progression that happens in these mountain moments. You see it in each of them. Mountain encounters lead to mission. You know, these encounters lead to evangelism. (laughs) These moments of experiencing who God is, revelation leads to us revealing to those around us who Jesus is, the nameable, the knowable, the not vague (laughs) God. 
If we know him, we will make him known. We, we see that with the woman at the well, don't we? She drops her water jar. She doesn't need it anymore. And she runs into the village and she says, come and meet this, this man who has, look at verse 28, told me um, everything. <laughs> this man, this knowable God, <laughs> come and see. You know, she is this evangelist having encountered God herself. Because mountains, as I said, lead to mission. We don't just come here on a Sunday to consume. You know, Christian faith isn't just, knowing God isn't just for us to take in and take in and take in. But as we do that, and we need to do that, we need to receive from him, we need to grow in our relationship with him, we should find, we don't always, and that's where we need to, to go back and to pray and to to be brave and to be bold and to be specific and to name Jesus in conversation, uh, we will find that his spirit and his life will flow from us. We will find ourselves, and we should expect to find ourselves, talking about Jesus with our colleagues and meeting people on the street and saying to them in the course of conversation about the goodness of God, about this knowable God. You know, that is something that we should expect. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, we read this. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. And in Nahum 1.15, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. There is this link, you see, with this kind of image and this thread and this idea of mountains and us being bringers of good news. So are your feet stepping out in the same direction as the God that you know, who stepped down the mountain towards the world, who needed him, are we stepping out, are our feet beautiful <laughs> in bringing good news to the world around us? Our call this evening and every day, in every moment, is to know God and in those moments, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, as we turn to him, as we pray, as we listen to his voice, to then go and share him, to make him known. Because the world, you know, and, and people we talk to in parties or in weddings need to know that there is a, a knowable, nameable God. And his name is Jesus. And he has come to us. And with him, there is hope and there is life eternal. So this week, um, I invite you to do that. Whether you're in a valley, <laughs> you know, God, God is there, <laughs> not just on the mountains. Whether you're on a mountain, maybe literally, God is there. And as you know he is there, will you share him? Will you make him known this week, tomorrow, this evening? Follow where he goes. He's come down. So let's go to...